You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, and that's me. And we always like to say our interviews over here at Recode Media are special because they are. But this one is extra special because I don't think anyone's ever gotten this group together in public or a podcast. Today, we've got a chat with Nick Denton, who created Gawker Media, and Jonah Peretti, who created BuzzFeed, and Ben Smith, who has a new book. It's called Traffic. It's about the two men and their companies and their rivalry and the heyday of digital media from roughly 2005 to 2015. I get into some of the context on this over at Vox.com. There's also a transcript you can read there for free. But for those of you who like to listen instead of read, here is the very short version for a couple of years, there were a lot of very smart people who thought the two companies, Nick Denton and Jonah Peretti, had created were the future of media. And now that doesn't seem like the case. Gawker was forced into bankruptcy by a vengeful billionaire back in 2016. BuzzFeed just had to close its money-losing news business. It's valued by investors at a fraction of the money it raised. But Smith's book is a fascinating portrait of a very specific time, a scene we keep calling it during our chat, and I thought it was worth going back to look at the past to see how it informs the future. And a bit to my surprise, all three men were up for it too. So here's Nick Denton and Jonah Peretti and Ben Smith and me. I'm here with Ben Smith, who among other things is the co-founder of Semaphore. Among other things, he's also got a new book out. I'm holding in my hands. It's called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. I'm also here with the two men Ben writes about in this book, Jonah Peretti, the founder and CEO of BuzzFeed, and Nick Denton, the founder of Gawker Media. It's my first four-person pod, and it's a good one to start off with. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Peter. Good to be here. Thank you, Nick. It's a long time since I've heard your voice. Normally, I'd start off by asking Ben a question since it's Ben's book, but Jonah, you're in the news. Uh, I'm talking to you in late April, a couple days after you shuttered BuzzFeed news. You had a memo that came out. Uh, explaining your decision. I just want to quote from that because I think it's relevant to this whole conversation. I made the decision to overinvest in BuzzFeed News because I love their work and mission so much. This made me slow to accept the big platforms wouldn't provide the distribution or financial support required support premium free journalism purpose built for social media. So I think that explains your your the reason to shudder it. But I have an alternate question, which is, isn't there a way to create a large important, meaningful, free publication that doesn't require Facebook or Google or another platform to actively support it? Is there some other way you could have pulled this off? 
I mean, HuffPost is is profitable and and doing well and being able to focus our news efforts for BuzzFeed Inc. behind HuffPost made a lot of sense given given the way that social has has changed. Um, although it is it is true over many years, um, BuzzFeed News lost a lot of money. And I love Ben and I love um, all the amazing work that we did together and the work that we did together. It wasn't the most fruitful financial partnership. Um, you know, we spent a lot of money defending lawsuits. We had um, advertisers pull because of our coverage. Um, we spent a lot on amazing journalists and investigations that were beyond, um, you know, the sort of logic of profitability. And we did that um, for a lot of different reasons that, you know, but I think when you look at the current environment, the ending of BuzzFeed News is a new beginning for both HuffPost, as well as some of the other initiatives that we're doing with creators and AI and other other things that are starting to, to really grow on the internet. I, I want to get to the future in a bit, but just to go to stick with the past a bit, because Ben's book is a lot of ways backwards looking. Um, it's the nature of, of history. Is there an alternate version where you create BuzzFeed News, but you don't do it dependent on infusions of investor cash. And so the thing grows slower, you hire less people, you still make great journalism, you just do less of it, and then you have a viable news operation in 2023. I mean, I think there are people who did that. Uh, there's some examples of what you're describing. Uh, we were just excited about this ama amazing explosion of audience that was happening on these social platforms and the lack of quality news on those platforms and filling this this need of reaching, you know, millions of people on the platforms where they were, and and giving them quality news, and and that approach worked for for a while. Um, I think what you're seeing now is there's a lot of news fatigue, and people want to navigate directly to news and spend time on news when they're in the mood for it. And the, the BuzzFeed business of lists and quizzes and entertainment works great on social. People love finding that stuff serendipitously. They love discovering it across social platforms, that business is really working. It's just news is special and different. It's more expensive. And it's also something that people only want in certain moments, um, and not necessarily when they're trying to blow off steam and 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 entertain themselves and, and kill time and connect with friends. All right, I want to come back to this question of how you make news in 2023 later on. Ben, this is your book that you're the reason we're here. Covers your book covers roughly a 15 year span, mostly in New York when digital media was booming, largely dominated by by Gawker and uh, BuzzFeed. And you're telling you were in the middle of all that. You were the editor of BuzzFeed News when it was on its ascent. You write in your book, this book has been for me a humbling exercise in what I missed even when I was there. Was there one big thing you missed or a lot of things? Oh, a million things. I mean. You know, certainly, as Jonah said, if there was a real logic when we started BuzzFeed News to, that I mean, it had a kind of brand logic and we a logic in sort of who BuzzFeed was and changing our identity and and we weren't thinking about being profitable and we should have obviously and I should have <laughs> knowing nothing about how to do it. But we should like in retrospect, if you had that back, obviously we could have and should have spent less money and made more particularly starting in 2015, 2016 period, I think when it, yeah, when, when, when it needed to mature and, and that's, that's on Jonah and it's on me. But I don't know. I think actually to me, because I was, you know, I was a bit of an outsider in the early 2000s when, when Nick and Jonah were going to cool parties at 
Nick's house or Jonah was going to cool parties in Nick's house and I was wishing I was invited. And so I, but I, and I copied a lot of Gawker actually in particular when I was a, like a young political blogger, but also like wasn't paying that close attention, didn't really understand what either of these guys was doing in terms of changing the media business, reacting to these huge trends. I mean, to me, some of the most revelatory stuff was, um, Maybe the single most revelatory one to me was looking back at Jezebel in 2007 and just seeing how that kind of blew that whole world of women's media open, how freaked out by it the, these powerful glossies were. Remind people who weren't in that world what, what Jezebel was. Yeah, so Jezebel was, and I guess, you know, Nick can jump in to correct me at any time, but um, there was, you know, they were interested in starting a women's blog because, you know, women's media is this huge category commercially, among other things, and also was unbelievably sclerotic and disruptible. And Anna Holmes, who Nick hired, you know, was just a very essentially, you know, kind of alienated product of the women's magazines and came in to blow them up, you know, whether around like frank conversations about women actually felt or around there not being any black models in the magazines. But the thing that when I was reading and talking to those women about it was like their audience had this unbelievably intense kind of parasocial relationship with them that was made them obsessed with their jobs, but also drove them totally nuts. And and it felt like, oh my God, they were living inside Twitter in 2007. And some of the sort of like, just the crucible of social media and identity and politics playing out, like that's almost like the first place that I realized it was playing out, which was really interesting to me. And I knew nothing about it at the time. Nick, Ben gives you a lot of credit in the book for sort of seeing the future. And sometimes even if you didn't understand you were seeing the future, like in the Jezebel case. I want to go backwards and forwards with you. Obviously, you were forced into bankruptcy because you lost the Hulk Hogan sex tape court case financed by billionaire Peter Thiel. I'm assuming you would risk being a really dour show. Yeah, no, no, no. We're going to get up. Like, I feel like Jonah and I are just really sad. Well, it's also, really it's also the nature. Nick's going to get in here. If we excise that tape from Gawker Media's history, wh- where is Gawker now? Is it a standalone company? What, what have you? What do you do with Gawker in 2023? Now, are there any companies from the list of digital? darlings of that period that still stand completely intact you know the daily beast is for sale you know, buzzfeed news and sadly had to cut back there isn't really a single vice is leaderless i i, I don't know whether gorka would have made it gizmodo might have so gorka actually stripped of the loss making and legally risky news gizmodo might have um, but I think this is a, a bigger shift, and I don't think anybody really could have made it through intact. Well, underline what that, that shift was, because for a while, you guys were taking advantage of the fact that you were the shift, right? You were the you were the upstarts. You were challenging the sclerotic publishers Ben's talking about. So what's the shift that would have made it impossible for Gawker to survive in 2023? I mean, I think the the big shift was the discovery of digital media as a category and the infusion of uh, vast amounts of capital. Um, then that really started with what the AOL acquisition of Huffington Post in 2011, the Andreessen investment in BuzzFeed, um, you know, transactions like that. Transactions actually in, in, that, in the early period of the, of the teens um, that, that really caused costs to increase, um, caused our ambitions to you know, all of our ambitions to um, uh, inflate and ultimately led to a reckoning. Um, in our case, the reckoning of legal costs that we couldn't 
withstand, and in other people's case, other competitive pressures. So, so if digital media sort of remains a, a kind of a backwater and, and people with money don't get excited and don't decide to invest in it, we have a different reality today? Well, well Gorka had a good what, eight, 10 years without a huge amount of heavily funded competition. I mean, there was the Huffington Post. We were definitely very aware of that. Yeah, and even that amount of competition really changed the nature of the sites were, that were in their market. Jonah, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, you know, I remember actually a, a, a coffee or a lunch with you at, at Balthazar, which you said that if we continue to tie our targets to page views, just the satisfaction of our core subscribers, that we were going to miss out on the growth that would come if we targeted uniques. And that seems like a technical distinction. But, you know, I feel that, you know, my competitive instincts were sharpened in that time. And, you know, we did, as you had advised, um, and we grew as a result. But sometimes I look back at that as being a juncture. Can you underline that? Because and that is in Ben's book, right? That that very discussion. Why? Because it seems like a very technical discussion uh, for this is both for Jonah and Nick. Why does shifting what a publisher focuses on from page views, literally number of the times a story is served up to anyone against uniques, which is theoretically measuring how many times individual people visited a site? Why why does that matter in terms of the way a publisher operates and sort of the long term impact? Before I do, can I just give Jonah the chance to correct me if I if my recollection of that was wrong? No, we did we did talk about that, and and we also had that conversation about this difference between indie rock and hip hop, where I think exactly. I was exactly suggesting that Gawker was like indie rock, where anytime a band gets popular, you you uh, you don't listen to it anymore because it's sold out if it's popular. And I was making the argument that media companies should be more like hip hop, where you don't sell out, you blow up, and being big and becoming a superstar, you know, performer or artist is is part of the goal. And I think that that analogizes to media in an interesting way, because there's a sort of question of the way you monetize something that has a small audience that is very loyal, lends itself to subscription, which, you know, I think Peter was mentioning before, if you had less, spent less money, had just grew slower and had a subscription model, you could build something much more sustainable. But then there's the the, this, the other approach of make things that are viral, that blow up culture, that have the maximum amount of impact, that reach new people. And that was always what got me most excited. And that lends itself to, to, to business models that are more about CPM advertising and, and scale and, and th things where you're, you're monetizing the fact that you're reaching. You know, Bu BuzzFeed Inc. now reaches the majority of millennials and Gen Z in the country, you know, every month, because we are still taking that approach of making content that people want to share and consume broadly, um, and and focusing on on those big uniques as opposed to getting more page views from that same audience who visit again and again and again. And to be frank, we were, I think, following to some extent the demands of the ad agencies and the media that would follow the ad agencies, the, the, the numbers that we were all measured on were monthly uniques uh, from a certain time. And there was a room for three digital media companies in every journalist's list. You know, when they would say digital media companies such as Vox Media, BuzzFeed, and XXX, uh, you know, who was going to be in that third position? There's only room for three. Uh, and the three were determined by the monthly uniques. And so that's what we ended up 
chasing after. We all opted to blow up, so to speak, Gorka more spectacularly than most. John, I don't know if you've read the book. I don't think Nick has, but I'm sort of curious what the two of you think of of the premise, right? That that your two companies and you two specifically were both rivals, but also sort of working together on parallel tracks to to grow digital media, and that what you did was was meaningful. Does that seem like a book to you that should be written? I thought it was a great book. I think it's interesting. I mean, of course, I don't have the critical distance from it because some of it was bringing back these great memories of of fun adventures that we had over over the years, building building these companies and trying to create stuff out of nothing and figuring out how to adapt to all the shifts and changes in the world. And that's still what gets me excited is the shifts and changes in the world that, that cause you to have to rethink the way you operate. And, and the book is full of stories like that. I think when I the the legacy of the work that we did in those early days, you definitely see in the platforms. And there's a lot of schizophrenia with the big social media platforms between trying to be positive and BuzzFeed-like in terms of a way of representing identity and representing the, the world, and then Gawker-like in terms of radical transparency and giving people a voice and pushing things out there that maybe people didn't want to see. And those two things kind of mashing together uh, in, in and creating a, 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 a the media environment that a lot that we're operating now, I definitely think those threads exist and and those threads show up in the book and 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 um, you know Ben's obviously a good reporter who found a lot of ways to found a lot of interesting information and things that haven't been reported before to to tell that larger story. Ben is a good reporter. Nick, I was trying to bait you. Does does it, does this seem like a book to you? It was a scene. Uh, it was clearly a scene, and it's probably worth a book as a scene. It was bigger than just BuzzFeed and, and Gorka. Um, but there was a, a good long five or ten years there where you know, there was a creative ferment, and journalists would be hired to or from one place. Uh, they would go and start up their own ventures even we would complain the owners would complain about the um, how pay rates were escalating and how this was looking like an increasingly unprofitable business um but it was a, an exciting lively time and it's frankly kind of depressing right now oh, all right let's try to go future focused here everyone's gonna get too pressed if i can just go back for a minute because i was I mean, I was sort of aware of that scene, but a little on the outside of it because i was at politico until but which was its own track of this but 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 when I got to BuzzFeed in 2012, you know how when you whenever you get you arrive in a scene, everyone who was there before tells you how amazing it was before you got there and how you miss like the really golden time. And I do think I got there like 2012 was actually really toward the end of this. Like I would put the end in 2016, maybe. But wherever you put it, I feel like my arrival, the, you know, this huge amount of venture money and this escalating spending in some ways marked the end of this like experimental, uh, totally kind of unselfconscious phase of this. And so, of course, I was obsessed with it as somebody who arrived late. And to me, like the joy of the book was going back and just like digging into this thing that I'd heard a lot of stories about. We'll be right back with Jonah Peretti, Nick Denton, and Ben Smith, and me, Peter Kafka, after a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, 
Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Ben, I wanted to ask you, so, so you're 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 six months into starting your new thing, Semaphore. Is any part of the the history you're digging up help you plot out uh, uh, your course for Semaphore? Oh, I can see what they did there. That was wrong. Let's do this. And then and then additionally, lots of the mechanical things that a new publication would have used uh, to launch itself up until really a couple years ago don't really seem to exist anymore or certainly aren't useful for publishers or much less useful. Yeah. Google, Facebook, Facebook, Twitter, uh, all of them, Google, right? Google like, continues to exist, but um, it continues to exist, but they are, they are, they are definitely stingy on, on sending referral traffic. Twitter is its own thing. Um, so how is that affecting what you're trying to do now? You know, I feel like the thing that I really, really learned from Jonah, but also learned from kind of obsessing about Nick and writing about them, you know, it's just that, I mean, just about, you have to sort of start in the moment you're in. I mean, there are these huge disadvantages to starting from scratch, bigger, I think, than I'd realized in terms of people not knowing your brand and things like that. But the huge advantage is just that you start in the moment you're in, you're not freighted with people's kind of organizational expectations of what a newsroom is supposed to be with, with, a, with a sort of internal culture of what the article and what the format is. And yeah, and I think, you know, what you, the fact that all these tools that people are using aren't available anymore is a huge asset to a newcomer. Like the, the notion that things are different again and that you can just sort of come out and try to reach people where they are in this moment is basically a big competitive asset compared to people who are doing things the way they've been doing them and are sort of have sunk a lot of cost in it and are organizationally connected to it. I mean, the biggest single one of those to me is just the sort of the extent to which, and this isn't particularly a media thing, but that people have shifted their attention and their connection to, to individuals over institutions. And that's like a 75 year trend in the movie business. And it's, I mean, it's not some brand new thing, but news being like the worst business has, has been the last one to arrive there. And so trying to build a newsroom around really sort of individual voices, but then get, and, and to try to do it in a way that still delivers to the people working here, a great newsroom is feels to me like a big competitive advantage right now and, and also a way to reach readers. So that's a good lemonade from Lemon Answer. Um, but when you guys break a scoop, don't you aren't you just wishing, oh man, I wish we could blast this out on Facebook, Twitter, Google and get all these eyeballs the, uh, oh, yeah, the in number, front of I mean, the, whatever I want. I mean, what's so kind of wild is that, I mean, Max Tani, our great media reporter, said to me the other day that he had been, he's like, I've realized I'm looking at the Drudge Report just to see what's going on. Like not to see what Dredge is saying, but just because like there's nowhere anywhere. You, like if you just wake up in the morning, you want to know like what is happening today. You really Twitter doesn't do that anymore. You can figure Twitter is still pretty amazing to see like what is happening on Twitter, but it's not a good place to figure out what's happening in the world. And so homepages have sort of come back. I mean, yeah. I don't think 
who knows where this all heads. But, it, but you know, and so Max wrote a story about that and got a huge link on the Drudge Report and got a lot of traffic. And it did feel like, wow, it's uh, it's 2007. Writing for Drudge remains a good tactic. Um, Jonah, I've asked you about your non-sale to, to Disney many times, and you always demure stonewall me ben finally wrote about it in detail great scene of of you two and john steinberg who was coo getting high in hollywood and uh john steinberg begging you to sell the company for about 500 million dollars how much do you regret not selling the company back then it's that that valuation is much more than buzzfeed is currently worth and if you had sold it to disney what would buzzfeed be like now I mean, a lot of the amazing stories in Ben's book never would have happened had we had we sold. I th- um, and I think the freedom we had and the impact on culture we had and the ability to to um, to continue to to innovate and change and evolve would have been a lot harder inside of inside of a big company. I think what um, what Nick was saying about the scene is really important. You know, everything great seems to come out of an interesting scene. Um, so. I saw some of the interesting technology stuff coming out of MIT Media Lab or went to grad school, which was kind of a scene. I think early New York media was a scene in, in LA. BuzzFeed Video came out of a scene of all these creators making new kinds of, of video about their own lives and own, own, own experiences. I think there's a great scene right now in generative AI, which is another you know in, interesting area. But those kinds of scenes, it's harder to stay connected to inside of giant corporations. And, and I think um, we did a lot of work that I'm really proud of uh, as a as an independent company. And I'm excited about future work that we're going to be able to do um, with more autonomy and freedom as an independent company. Ben, what's your favorite uh, coulda, woulda, shoulda story from your book? The the Disney one gets a ton of attention, but there's also Mark Zuckerberg wanting to, to buy Jonah or Aquahire the company. Uh, there's Jonah flirting with Carlos Watson, who was at Ozzy at the time. You know, I mean, honestly, like, I think my regrets are about not understanding the business of news, which is a different and worse business than the entertainment, harder business than the entertainment business, better earlier. I mean, we sort of, you know, Joan and I were working on it when I, you know, by the time I left, but I, it wasn't my strong suit or experience. And I, and I guess, like, my personal regrets are about about that. But I do think, I mean, the Disney thing, I, you know, it's, I mean, I, I did have some, one of my colleagues read that excerpt and walked up to me just now and was like, hey, so if somebody offers to buy our company for $600 million, you should, you should say yes. But I actually also don't have any regrets at all. Like, I think that like the job, which is an important, interesting job of helping ABC News in particular, Disney in general, figure out digital, like important job that I would have been like terrible at and hated. Nick, you have been out of media since 2016. Is that a fair way to put it? Correct, yeah. How have your views about media and particularly transparency in journalism, that was something you were really uh, obsessed with for a long time when you were running Gawker Media. How have those changed now that you've had time to really sort of look at it from a remove? I mean, the the idea, and it wasn't really my idea, it was something that was kind of around in the internet scene of, you know, circa 2000. Uh, or 2005, the idea was that if we connect everybody and all information is available, um, that collectively through the internet, we'll piece it all together and come to a better mutual understanding of how the world works, how we can affect change. And the jury is still out. That That is for sure. 
That sounds like an Elon Musk view of the world right now. And I mean, we're, he's roughly the same age as you. Do, you. do you think that that idea, I'm surprised to hear you say the jury is still out. So you still think there's hope of like, let everyone say whatever they want. We'll sort it all out in the mix and we'll end up with a better, a better, vi- a better vision of the world than if we rely on X number of gatekeepers or credentialed people, as we call them now. I mean, it's pretty much the view that the Silicon Valley right has. You know, if you look at Mark Andreessen's one of his most recent essays, you know, he's talking. He talks about the sharpness of the divide as being, you know, a, a feature, not a problem, and that it's the old establishment, the old managerial class that mm-hmm. is so afraid of these populist voices and so afraid of argument. I don't know. Oh, I, I expect you to say that's absolutely wrong. Um, I, I don't believe that anymore. You didn't hear me say that. No, I did not. Uh, ben, you mentioned Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in your book a couple times. They're minor characters oh in Hamlet. They got their own play. What does that illusion have to do with Gawker and BuzzFeed and, and you? Oh, I guess I got it. It seemed like questionably too pretentious to include. And also, I definitely read it in high school. But just like there's that, that there's that line, there's a passage where it's just like, and it, I th- assume this is true of every scene, of every thing where you feel like you are shaping the forces of history and at some point you realize that you're riding the tide right i think actually the folks involved here had a very clear sense that they had they had not that they had created these sort of digital forces but they were channeling them but i do think the extent to which at least i was under the illusion that i could control them a lot more than i could um, I'm going to wrap this up with a question for all of you, so you can take it whatever turn you want. Um, it seems like we're in an inflection point right now. In fact, uh, Ben, you guys just wrote about this in Semaphore, that it seems like some era has just sort of shifted in the last year or so. Again, we've talked about this a bunch of times. The platforms are, are no longer what they were for media companies. We have an AI boom that Jonah seems very optimistic about. I think a lot of folks think that it could be really the death knell for a lot of publications. Um, people have just less incentive to visit various websites or publications, whatever you want to call them. What's your confidence in, in the media environment for the next however many years? I'll start with Ben. I mean, that's a very abstract question. I'll stick to my little corner of it. I mean, I do think that in a healthy, sane country, people are going to be consuming less news than they were in the period 2016 to 2020. Like that was not just a media bubble. It was like a society-wide freakout disaster, which by the way, could reignite at any moment. I mean, I kind of hope that we don't go back to that that level of people feeling like they, that, you know, that they needed to wake up in the morning and read some news that was could totally change their lives. Um, but I also think like people all over the world do wanna know what's going on and are sick of both the delights and the toxicity of social media and are looking for new ways to do it and people change and society and culture change and it's a moment when it's there's certain kinds of great journalism it's really satisfying to do where you feel like you're talking directly to an audience that's sick of being mediated by you know that's sick of being feeling manipulated by algorithms and wants to hear directly from a person the downside of it is you can't manipulate that algorithm into getting a billion people to see your post so you know Jonah, uh, you're running a publicly traded media company. I'm going to assume that you are optimistic, but uh, maybe you can add more nuance to that. I mean, if you want to understand where I think media is going in the next you know, three to five years, you can just look at what we're doing. You know, we're, we're not going to do premium social first news anymore, which is why we you know, sadly um, stopped, stopped the BuzzFeed News operation. Um, some of those um, talented people are moving to to both BuzzFeed and HuffPost, where social entertainment continues to really thrive with BuzzFeed. And 
news, internet news is is doing great at, at HuffPost because people want to choose when they see the news. They go to a big homepage, they're visiting directly, you know, getting getting quality information through a, a means that doesn't require the platforms to that same level of degree. Um, and then a boom in generative AI, opening up new platforms and new formats are a big area of investment where we're expanding that for, for the BuzzFeed brand and, and for, for other brands, um, making things like AI-powered quizzes and chatbots and, and other new formats that um, we're inventing and, and developing you know, right now at the company that will be part of this next wave of the internet that is very exciting and just getting started. How, how do you how do you think about the threat of generative AI? Not not about disinformation, misinformation, but about just simply giving people less incentive to go to a HuffPost or anything you publish when they could find it, get all their answers directly from Bing or Bard or whatever the whatever the the chatbot of the moment is. Well, I mean, I think like what Ben was just saying earlier about um, you know, you can go to the front page of Drudge or you can go to the front page of HuffPost and know what's going on in the world. You know, that's going to be really important. And the and news is is going to remain an editorial product where you're going to want to know what's happening in the world. I think AI is going to be much more about personalization and create, you know, both in, entertainment and service journalism that is perfectly personalized for, for you. And that people are going to start to look at content that isn't personalized as being somehow broken. Like, why am I reading this thing about what my diet or exercise should be or or some other aspect of my life or what clothes I should wear or what products I should buy? And it's not personalized at all. And it could be written for anyone. Like, people are going to just start to see that as this makes no sense um, and, 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 and start to have expectations that are based on what the new technology can provide for them. And that's always been the case. It's the same we saw with social. Back in the early days, you know, that Ben's book covers, we... we you know, people were like, why can I not share this news article with the people in my life that I care about? I'm reading it in the newspaper and I can't talk about it. I can't share it. I can't spread it. You know, and some people's expectations shift and news has to have that social component. And now with generative AI, I think you're going to see similar thing, but it's going to be more about personalization and and connection to, to the individual, um, you know, consumer where they're going to expect things to be personalized and and made for them and more interactive and more um, dynamic than than what static content is is today. Nick Denton, you, I think, are the longest tenured uh, person in this conversation. You kind of kicked a lot of this off. You get the last word. What's the future of digital media look like? What's the future of media look like from your perspective? TikTok and Substack. Those are the places where I spend more of my time than anywhere else. These days, uh, maybe I'm extrapolating from my personal habits, but you know, people like Matt Iglesias and Noah Smith, Andrew Sullivan, Glenn Greenwald on whatever platform he's on now, uh, you know, they have thrived since leaving media organizations. They're making good money. They're part of, uh, in the Substack case, part of a platform that takes a very thin cut uh, of the total revenues. They are basically living the old blogging dream. Mm -hmm. That's and, the pitch from uh, Substack, and it's and it's insane too. And 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 TikTok seems like the the other end of the the, the pole there. Well, I guess the Substack is necessarily kind of text leans towards text. It's very texty, uh, and TikTok has got most of the growth in in video. 
Right, but but also Substack is you pick the 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 Mataglases that you want to pay attention to, and that's what you get, True. and and you, you probably are not branching out of that. And TikTok is designed to give you a bunch of different stuff, which changes all the time. And I'm assuming that's part of what you're thinking about as well. Uh huh. All right, we want we want to end it there. I wanted to give you a big grand thesis, but I think TikTok and Substack could work. Am I missing anything? Nothing, no. Peter. We, we got it, it all out. It's a you busy it. day. I'm going to let you guys go. Ben, Jonah, Nick, Peter, thank job. you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank, thank you, Peter. This was super weird and interesting for me. I'll take it. Thanks, guys. Thanks again to Jonah Peretti, Ben Smith, and Nick Denton for showing up and for talking. That was great. Thanks to Jelani and Travis for producing and editing. Our sponsors for bringing this show to you for free. Zero dollars, zero cents. Always has been. Probably always will. This is Recode Media. We have another episode for you coming this week. Also free. See you soon.